Well, thank you so much uh, for coming today. Um, I saw that a few other churches um, were not having their service. I thought back this morning, the coldest time I've ever preached on a Sunday morning was 22 below zero back in Iowa. And it was at a church that never closed its doors ever, no matter how much snow or how cold it was, because there were always a few people who would come to church. And so we always had the doors open. And I probably wouldn't do that at 22 below zero. So if if it were tomorrow morning, we probably wouldn't have church. But thank you so much uh, for being here today. So Bridge Kids, uh, you are dismissed. Thank you for being here. And today we're going to begin a new series from the Gospel of Mark. I'm excited uh, to head into this new series in 2014. And I'm going to read uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So I would invite you to turn there. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, page 694 or 1001, if you picked up a Bridge Bible when you came in. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region, region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And today will be an introduction to the book of Mark. It's called The Gospel of Action, and today we're focused on the good news. In his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, Walter Wessel writes this introduction. And uh, so I thought it was helpful to see if I can capture his idea. The Gospel of Mark is a succinct and unadorned yet vivid account of the ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mark presents a narrative in an appealing way, for he tells the good news about Jesus Christ so simply that a child can understand it. He further writes, like a pool of deep water, it is far deeper than it looks. Therefore, one ought to approach the study of this book humbly, with due recognition of the need for wisdom from the Almighty God and enlightenment from the Holy Spirit. And that's my prayer as we begin. So with an introduction, we're going to look at some introductory matters as you come to a book study. At least that's how I like to approach it. And uh, we're going to begin with the author, Mark. And who is Mark? Boy, I'm glad you asked because... That's what, my, I, that's, my answer, that's what I'm going to answer right next. We start with a brief mention of him in Acts chapter 12. So let's look at Acts 12. And this is where we meet Mark. Here's the, here's the backstory here. Peter's just gotten out of jail. It's miraculously, his prison doors were opened, and he went to a prayer meeting. 
when he had when it had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. That's our Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So we know that Mark's mother is named Mary. There were prayer meetings at her house, and so John is in this environment. And uh, this is real early church, and. Good heavens, the Apostle Peter walks in the front doors. Later, verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul, remember Saul is the Apostle Paul before his name change. It's right after Saul's early conversion. So this is the Apostle Paul, very young as a new believer in Christ. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John also called Mark. So what's the point? Well, this young man not only hung out with the Apostle Peter, but he hung out with the Apostle Paul in the early days and Barnabas. Uh, next passage is Acts fifteen thirty-seven. But things changed. Look at verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark. So this is John Mark. With them, but Paul who was also called Saul, did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So there had been a problem with young Mark. He didn't follow through. He dropped out. He quit right in the middle of a mission trip. And Paul does not trust young John Mark as much as Barnabas. Uh, Next slide. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. This is a great uh, little study in uh, relational conflict because here are two godly leaders, Paul and Barnabas, and they have a disagreement about their mission trip. And it's about who to take. And Barnabas wants to take young John Mark. Barnabas is a potential guy. He sees the potential in this young leader named Mark. However, Paul is a little more task-oriented, and Paul wants to win the mission. And he doesn't want to risk losing time on the mission with John Mark, who might drop out. So you have two godly people who have a sharp disagreement. Do they sin? Scripture doesn't say that they do. They disagree and they take choices. The interesting thing is, out of uh, one group of one team of two, now we have two teams that uh, that are up to four. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul, who was much more practical, chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So they left in a good good standing with their church. Uh, Husbands and wives can learn from how to have a godly disagreement. However, you may not want to part company over it and take separate trips. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, we meet Mark again. This is sort of the evolution of Mark's character. My fellow prisoner, prisoner Aristarchus, this is the end of the book. And so um, Paul is kind of signing off. He says, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Mark and Barnabas are relatives. And Barnabas has developed young Mark into a trustworthy man of God. And then Paul says, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. I want you to take care of Mark if he comes. 
I care about him. He's a valuable guy. The next one is uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 13. This is Peter. Um, a little later, historically, in the life of the church, she who is in Babylon, probably a code name for Rome. R- Christians are struggling in Rome during this time period. And so um, Peter didn't directly refer to Rome, but referred to a code that the Christians understood. Um, and this church in Rome sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. For Peter, John Mark is like a son in the faith. He uh, is a man that he is mentored and developed, and uh, he's close to Peter. Peter's not going to live forever, uh, at least in the physical world. And in some short time, Peter will face death. One of the important things is that we're going to talk about this morning is who, um, who wrote Mark. When you think of Mark, he was not one of the 12 disciples. This is who he is. But where did he get his firsthand information And the answer is, it's from Peter. John writes through the eyes of Peter, the wise apostle who saw these events firsthand. And as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you can see it. The guy was there. But it's not Mark. It's going to be Peter. Next passage, 2 Timothy 4.11. This is Paul's last days. We don't know how much longer he lives, but we don't think he lives much longer after this. So Paul is older. Uh, Young John Mark has been in the ministry faithfully for quite some time, years. Only Luke is with me, Um, Paul writes. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. Paul is alone except for Luke. He's been deserted by some, and he wants Mark. He wants Mark to come to him. He wants Mark to be there. He values um, his relationship with Mark and the ministry that Mark brings. And what are we saying? Mark has changed. Uh, He's developed quite um, a reputation and uh, a godly reputation and is um, highly thought of in the New Testament period. There's a few things we know about Mark. What's the date of this book? I don't know. But I guess 57 to 59 A.D., there's, Mark is viewed as written early and also late. There, there are really good arguments. Questions about uh, Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 AD. Was Jerusalem um, still present when Mark wrote? And were Peter and Paul still alive when Mark wrote? It's not perfectly clear, but it's early. And so one of the things you need to know is that um, Matthew and Luke read Mark first before they wrote. And Matthew and Luke are longer because they focused on slightly different things and added information that Mark didn't include. Mark's intention was not to include everything. You're going to see that. Here are some of the features. There are several. Mark is the first to give an account of Jesus's public ministry and personal discipleship of the 12. Think about it. Before Mark wrote, nothing publicly had been written. Only the preaching of the disciples. If you were in the early church, nothing had been written. And so 
Mark is the first to give an account of Jesus' public ministry. You know, we've heard about Jesus, and now Mark's going to write it down. We get a story. Mark's account was seen through the eyes of Peter. I mentioned that. It is the shortest of the Gospels. It was used by Matthew and Luke uh, as a resource for their Gospels. Mark pictures Jesus as a man of action. Uh, Jesus is continually on the uh, move in the book of Mark. And what is it? It's how Peter sees him. And it's exactly what happened. But Peter is a man of action. And uh, the book of Mark uses the word immediately 41 times. You know, does everything happen immediately? Well, Peter thought it did when he followed Jesus. Mark uh, was not interested in telling the birth narratives for Jesus or giving, uh, giving any genealogy. So there's no list of how Jesus was connected back to Abraham or to Adam or to, to, to David. There are no lists. And there's no, the Christmas story is not there. Uh, he gives the fewest parables and the least amount of teaching. So like in Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. That's an extended time of teaching. Matthew 24 and 25 is the Olivet Discourse. That's an extended time of teaching. Mark doesn't do that. Uh, Mark focuses on Jesus being a doer of deeds. He's a man of action. Mark was not focused on a Jewish audience. He writes to a Gentile audience in Rome and extends it to the Roman Empire. There are a lot of concepts. And so Mark sometimes explains Jewish ideas because a Jewish audience would assume them, but a Gentile audience wouldn't understand. So he was focused on the actions uh, more than the words of Jesus. The theme of the book is servanthood. Jesus was a servant, and we can say that Jesus was the ultimate servant, the doer of deeds. We find the theme verse in Mark 10, 42 through 45. So I personally believe this is what the whole book of Mark is about. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. It's not how it's going to be. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Next slide. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And here's the theme verse. For even the Son of Man, referring to Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what the book of Mark is about. It's about Jesus being a doer of deeds. So just an observation as I look at that verse, if you want to be more like Jesus in 2014, your life is going to be more about serving others than it was in 2013. If you're going to be more like Jesus. Let's start with verse 1. The good news begins with Jesus. You have a, an outline in your program if you'd like to follow. The good news begins with Jesus. And Jesus' entire life was good news. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Some of our translations read the beginning of the good news. So the word gospel simply means good news, and they're really interchangeable. Um, and then Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Those words are interchangeable. Mark begins with the public ministry of Jesus. 
Um, and, and we're going to see this. Jesus goes public really at his baptism. And that's what we're going to focus on next week. And Mark is setting us up for that. That's the three-year period of Jesus' life. We, 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 we know about Jesus' birth. We know about an event that happens when he's a toddler in Matthew 2. We know in Luke about something that happens when he's 12. And then we have silence until the baptism. And so Mark is going to pick up the story like at age 30 of Jesus. He begins with the public ministry, not his birth. Um, Mark begins with public ministry, but Jesus' entire life was good news from birth to death. Because the good news is about God becoming a man from birth to death. God, we call it the incarnation of Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about God entering the human race. And that was uh, really good news. Um, first, uh, good news started with his birth. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. started with his birth, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. And uh, that's the gospel. I bring you good news. Starts with the birth of Jesus. That will cause great joy for all the people, not just for Israel, not just for Jewish people, but for all people, including all Gentiles. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So uh, that's good news, clearly from his birth. The word good news uh, also means glad tidings. It's helpful to understand that it was also a descriptor used in the Roman Empire at the time of the birth of Christ. So when a Roman emperor had something to announce that was important about his life, it was called good news. Good news. Augusta, the emperor Augusta, is, is uh, becoming of age. Good news. Uh, the emperor Augustus is going to be uh, crowned today. Glad tidings. And that was supposed to be for the, a, a blessing for the Roman Empire. But God has good news that's way beyond the emperor of Rome. And it applies directly to Jesus. Jesus' entire life was good, new, good news. In his life, he revealed his father to us. He said, I and the father are one. He showed us how God acts as a human. Think about that. Jesus lived out a life that demonstrated how God acts as a human being. He gave instructions for us as how we should live. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He gave people hope. He gave people new lives. And then uh, the, the good news is, is ultimately lived out in his death. Even in his tragic death, he brought good news. In his death, 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 1 through 4, and I think that's supposed to say 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. So this is that message of the gospel. It's the message of eternal life. It's that message that we communicate so that people can be saved from the penalty of sin. Um, I want you to, re to remind you of the gospel. I preached to you what you received on which you have taken your stand by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Next slide, verse 3. Um, 
For what I've received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that's it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And even in his death, it was good news. Good news for us. Because when he died, he paid the penalty for our sins. Um, when, he, when he was buried, it demonstrated that he actually died a physical death. And then when he was raised, it demonstrated victory over sin and uh, over the evil one and over death, ultimately. Um, also, Jesus is identified in verse 1 as the Christ. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. You probably already know this, but let me just say it, and I won't have to say it again. The word Christ is a title that means anointed one. It's not Jesus' last name. I know you already knew that. He wasn't the, the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ was his title. The word Messiah is a synonym for Christ. It is a title it means anointed one. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. And the Greek word is for Christ is Christos. They mean the same thing. And Jesus is the anointed one. He's the promised one from the Old Testament. He's what all of the Old Testament look forward to. Jesus is identified as the Christ. Also, Jesus is identified as the Son of God in verse 1. So, you know, Mark is just going to jump into this. He's going to throw out all this stuff just like that, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He wants his audience to know that Jesus is the Christ, but he also wants them to know that he is the Son of God, meaning this one uh, that brings good news has the same authority as the Father, has all the rights and privileges of the Father. Father. And when you talk about authority, that's really big in the Roman Empire. And Jesus has the authority of the Father. And he's going to demonstrate that. And Mark's going to show it over and over again, the authority that Jesus brings. So verse 1 is a summary statement of all the gospel of Mark. And the passage we look at this morning is merely an introduction to the book. So the good news begins with Jesus, verse 1. Secondly, the good news was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures, verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. And Mark writes, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight, make straight paths for him. Mark uses Old Testament prophecy to introduce the first key player in the good news about Jesus. The first key player. It's the marker. John the Baptist is going to be the marker of this public ministry. Isaiah foretold this in the 8th century BC, this very same idea. And this is what Mark is drawing on. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So eight centuries before the birth of Christ, Isaiah the prophet speaks, writes these words. A voice, a spokesman, a spokesperson for God. A prophet will speak for God. It's not just any old voice. It's a unique personality. And, 
he will be in the wilderness. That's where he's going to be located. We don't know where. It's going to be in the nation Israel. And he, his job is going to be to prepare a preparatory job. He's going to prepare the way of, for the Lord. He's going to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We don't know what that's about yet, but we're going to see it when we see the life of John the Baptist. He would be an ambassador for the king. He would be an emissary to make proper arrangements for this king. Next, Malachi foretold this in the late 5th century BC. Malachi is the last prophet who wrote in the Old Testament. And so he writes in 400 to 450 BC. And here's what he writes in Malachi 3.1. I will send my messenger. Who? God is speaking. And God says, I will send. So God is going to send my messenger. It's going to be a messenger from God for God. And who will prepare the way before me? Who's coming? God. He's going to prepare the way for God. God's coming. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Well, that's just a clue. It makes a whole lot of sense after you read the New Testament. It's pretty hard to understand if you only know the Old Testament. And Malachi says, suddenly the Lord you are seeking. They're, they're waiting for Messiah. And he's going to come to his temple. Where? In Jerusalem. One of the first things Jesus did when he got to town is he went in and he ran the money changers out with a whip of cords. He cleansed the temple. This is not how God's temple is supposed to be used. And that was a big sign right here fulfilling Malachi 3.1. The messenger of the covenant. It's going to be a new covenant. We already have a messenger of the old covenant and he was Moses. There's going to be a new covenant whom you desire. So this is a pretty significant person. Malachi 3, verse 1. By the way, in John 1.23, John the Baptist says he's the one. He comes right out and says it. And if it helps, later Jesus is going to prove it, okay? But John is the one who fulfills this. Um, so Mark is identifying the good news about Jesus with Old Testament prophecy, showing this good news was a part of God's plan all along. There's nothing, it was all planned out by God. The good news begins with Jesus. The good news was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Last, the good news was announced by John the Baptist, verses 4 through 8. John the Baptist, he was the last Old Testament prophet. Okay? He was the last Old Testament prophet. Put your arms around that. How can that be? Mark is in the New Testament. Matthew's in the New Testament. Luke is in the New Testament. John is in the New Testament. There's a lot about John Baptist in the book of John. How can that be? Well, when you think about the role of John the Baptist, his ministry happened under the Old Testament law. There was no New Testament yet. Jesus hadn't died yet. All this took place just like all of the Rules that God's people had to keep in the Old Testament. Um, so John lived under the Old Testament law and he died under the Old Testament law. And he functions as an Old Testament prophet. What do, what do Old Testament prophets do? 
they call people, they call God's people back to keep the law. They call God's people to obedience. Usually God's people are drifting away and God sends an Old Testament prophet, calls them on the carpet and says, get back, which means repent, okay? I should do a little quiz on how many Johns you know in the Bible, but let me just say this. John the Baptist was not John the Apostle. John the Apostle was one of the 12 disciples, and his brother was James. That is not John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is not John Mark, is he? Mark's the writer of the gospel. John the Baptist is the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And his birth is told in Luke 1. It's a supernatural birth. And Zechariah is a priest that served in Jerusalem. By rights, John could have been a priest, but that's not what God had for him. Um, And um, Elizabeth, John's mother, is a cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it's a pretty important part of the story. He was the last Old Testament prophet. Next, he baptized in the desert region, verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was highly unusual. I don't think you can imagine how unusual this would be. Unless you just thought it was one more sort of idiot, one more uh, crazy person uh, trying to speak for God and looking weird and acting weird and doing weird things. That's how it may have first have appeared. When you think about this, Jerusalem was the religious center of Israel. That's where the temple was. And that's where all the religious leaders were because that's where the temple was. So you had the high priest in Jerusalem, you had a priesthood in Jerusalem, you had Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes in Jerusalem. They were the professional clergy. And uh, there were no religious activities designated for the wilderness or for the desert. And that's where John is. Doesn't make sense. Unless unless you know Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. So out in the wilderness, in the desert region, John and his disciples baptized people. And to to baptize means to dip or to immerse or to dunk. And they were baptizing in the Jordan River. Okay? And there's a problem with that is because... Who gets baptized? Well, the only people that get baptized in John's day are Gentiles who want to become Jewish uh, religious people. They want to adopt or adapt to the Jewish faith. And so Gentiles, the way they were brought in to show that their hearts were ready and right is they were baptized. A Jewish person was not baptized. So this is highly unusual, the ministry that John has. But, you know, where did he get the ministry? He got it from God. Uh, So in the Old Testament, water baptism was a practice of ritual cleansing. It was to show a clean heart. But it wasn't for Jewish people. Uh, Next, uh, John preached a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Also in verse 4, he preached a message of repentance and forgiveness. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
So John had a public preaching ministry out in the wilderness near the Jordan River where they baptized. What did he do? He talked about people's sin. He said, you guys need to change. You guys are sinners. You guys are far from God. You need to repent, change your mind, change your heart. You need to get right with God. That's what he was calling on. And so uh, the amazing thing about this was John had a powerful preaching ministry and people's hearts were pricked and they were, and, uh, um, they, they were under deep conviction of sin. And they just wanted to obey God because God was speak, John was speaking for God. He had everybody's attention. And uh, it was very powerful. And so people who recognized their sin and wanted to change, they came forward to be baptized by John or his disciples. And the baptism didn't, wasn't a spiritual work. It was just a picture. Uh, it was a public identification with the message of John. And it was saying, we intend now to follow God. We, we, we want clean hearts and we have asked for forgiveness. That's what it meant. That's what John's baptism meant. Um, and it, it was uh, people who were baptized. It was a picture that they had been forgiven by God. Um, and let me just say this. This is not Christian baptism. This is pre-Christian. This is before. Because John had a very unique role. This is not about the church. And I would say this, if you haven't been baptized as a believer in Christ, you should seriously think about it because God has a purpose and an intention for everyone who is a follower of Christ to be baptized as a believer. So John's role was to prepare the way for Jesus. Remember, he was to prepare the way for the Lord. John's ministry of preaching and baptism prepared people's hearts. Um, Everybody go out in the wilderness there's someone out there you need to hear, a voice of one calling, prepare the way. And so people went out and people listened and they responded and they got baptized. What do we have? We have a whole bunch of people who have tender hearts for God and they want to hear Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. The Christ is here and they're ready. So when Jesus goes public, there's a group of people who just their ears are ready. Because God has prepared their hearts through John's ministry. Uh, fourthly here, he, uh, John, drew thousands of people from Jerusalem and Judea to the desert to hear God's word. Verse 5. Thousands of people came out. Uh, Mark uses hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? It's a figure of speech, a little exaggeration. It's a, it's a valid figure of speech. Uh, so some people want to make this crazy. Look at verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem. So if you are a wooden head literalist, that means that every person in every home and in every room in Jerusalem had to go out. No, John is using, or Mark is using hyperbole. And the idea is, man, there was a crazy impact. Thousands and thousands of people left Jerusalem and went out to the desert. And that's crazy because there's, you know, they don't, have any, they don't have any hot dog stands out there. They don't have any bathroom facilities out there. Thousands of people went out just to hear a preacher. This was huge. God was moving. Revival was taking place. And this was extremely disturbing to the religious leaders 
of Israel. Can you imagine this? You've got, you've got the high priest. You've got hundreds of priests in Jerusalem. You've got Sadducees and Pharisees, teachers of the law and scribes. And they don't know anything about this. God hasn't told them anything. And John is the one who has the message. Well, God has told them a lot because he gave them all of the Old Testament. But their hearts weren't listening. So uh, we have a map. I just want you to picture what's happening here. So Mediterranean Sea on the left. The land of Israel is on the right. You see this little the city of Nazareth up at the top. And that little pool of water is the Sea of Galilee. It's just the lake, by the way. You come down uh, about 70 miles and you see Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. That's the center of uh, the religious community. That's where the temple is. And then you see Bethlehem. It's really small and it's just a few miles away from Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was born. And then you see the connection between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is the Jordan River. Well, John is east of uh, Jerusalem and he a little bit north and he's out there at the river and it's just a desert except this weird river running through it. And near the river, there are trees and some green things, but everywhere else, it's just a desert and a mountainous area. And God's plan was going to go outside of the religious community, going to go outside of established religion in the first day, and I'm going to have people come out to hear a prophet. There's going to be no sound system, and he's just going to preach his heart out. And it was extremely powerful. Verse 6, he chose a simple and humble lifestyle. Uh, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a, belt of, uh, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, so he, he, he wore the clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt. This was not your typical professional clergy vestments of the first century. That's not what a Pharisee dressed like or a Sadducee or it's not what a priest would dress like. Uh, John happened to dress like an Old Testament prophet named Elijah. And we know that from 2 Kings 1 verse 8. And uh, here the king of uh, Samaria, Ahaziah, uh, he has fallen and has a serious injury. And he wonders if he's going to live. And so he tells his people, go check with the God of Ekron to see if I'm going to live. Not a good idea. Samaria is in Israel. It's the northern kingdom of Israel. And, you know, he should be seeking the true and living God and getting an opinion from the true and living God. But he's seeking the God of Ekron, the God of the Philistines, for an answer. And, they, and his people say, they replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. He did not want to hear that. The man of God, Elijah, told the king's people that he was going to die. It was not good news for the king. The point is, this is how Elijah dressed as the prophet of God. It's probably the most significant prophet in the Old Testament. Um, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. By the way, when this is written, Elijah is already dead. So this, this is something unique here. God is going to send a prophet, prophet like Elijah. He calls him Elijah. 
He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. God says, this is how the Old Testament closes, by the way. This is in the last chapter of the Old Testament. God said, I'm going to send Elijah. And so when Jesus shows up, there are people asking him if he's Elijah. Are you Elijah? No. They asked John the Baptist if he was Elijah. John wouldn't answer that. Um. Later, Jesus will verify that John the Baptist fulfilled Malachi's prophecy and that John the Baptist is indeed the fulfillment of Elijah. Verse 7, he announced the coming of God's anointed one, the Christ. Verse 7, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, Mark is only going to give us a brief nutshell, a brief capsule of John's preaching. John's preaching was probably longer than this. Um, John announces the coming of an immensely great leader. John did not know who he was yet, even though Jesus is a cousin of John. John doesn't know that Jesus is the one yet. Um, But he already knows He, John, is unworthy to untie the sandals of Messiah, the great one, the promised one, the holy one of Israel. And um, untying sandals was the job of the household servant. People came into the house with dust on their feet, whether it was the owner of the house or a house guest. The servant would help that person remove their sandals and help them wash their feet. This was the job of a servant. What is John saying? I'm not worthy to be a servant of Jesus. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. I'm not worthy to wash his feet. This isn't a poor self-image. This is humility because he understands who the Messiah is in that he is God in the flesh. Uh, he compared, lastly, he compared his ministry with the greatness of Christ's ministry. Mark 1, verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's ministry, as you can see, was extremely important and significant. He prepared hearts and he baptized people with water. Um, he made a huge impact. Jesus Christ will change people's hearts forever, not just prepare them. And Jesus Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be uh, an everyday companion for a follower of Christ and a resource for a Christian every day. Now, I could say a whole lot about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I'm just going to save that for another day. Um, But um, Acts 1 verse 5, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Who's the speaker? Jesus, Jesus has already been crucified. He's already resurrected. And on this day, he's going to ascend into heaven. He's going to leave the earth. But he said, here's the promise. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, 10 days later, day of Pentecost, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to begin the church. It's a miraculous event. People speak with other languages and communicate the gospel to different people. Groups of Jewish people in Jerusalem on that day was miraculous. But it was way more than that. It was the Holy Spirit 
attaching those people to a new group called the body of Christ, the church. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preached and 3,000 people were saved. And that new church had its beginning. And Jesus baptized that new church in the Holy Spirit. So the story of the gospel is still being written. The good news is ongoing. Here's a question I have for you. How has the good news impacted you? How has the good news impacted you? Have you experienced the forgiveness of sins? Uh, for me, it, at, at the age of 25 as an atheist, to experience the forgiveness of sins when I didn't even think I was a sinner, wow, that was a big insight. And I liked it afterwards. And it had a major impact on our, in our marriage, revolutionized our marriage, and put us on a track to grow. It had a big impact on what I thought about people. I didn't like people. If you'd have met me at, a long time ago, I wouldn't have liked you. You didn't fit in my world. I didn't like Christians either. Mostly Christians I didn't like. And um, Jesus has had a major impact on what I think about the Bible. I love to read the Bible. Um, I didn't like to pray. Um, I, I didn't like people to talk about the gospel. But I love to share the gospel. And Jesus has changed all of that uh, for me. So another question for you is, how are you good news in the place where you live? Uh, go back to question one. How are you good news in the place where you live, work, or go to school right now? How are you good news? Like when you walk into a room at your workplace, are you good news or bad news? Are you like uh, a positive influence for good? Do you bring grace and gentleness and kindness and you forgive people easy? Are you good news? Are you a patient person? Um, are you a humble person? Or do you tend to be self-centered, self-focused, and self Absorbed. If you're a Christian, you're probably a little of both. Um, what value, what added value do you, br do you bring to your workplace or home? Do you bring honesty and truthfulness or gossip? Do you have space in your life for people? Do you have time for people uh, when they face struggles in life? How are you uh, with good news, being good news in your home? Do you express love, honor, respect, and respect to your mate? Does your mate see you as good news or a burden? Are you a humble servant in your marriage? Or do you act like you're entitled in your home? Are you a patient person? Or does your family see you as demanding? Kids, do you grumble and complain when your parents give you responsibility? Something to think about. And then the last question, uh, what can you do to be good news in the place where you live, work, or go to school in 2014? We're starting a new year. This is a great time for new starts. 
How can you become more like Jesus in 2014? Um, maybe you need to get back into the scriptures in 2014. You know, it's, it's easy after the holidays to slide a little bit. Maybe you've been sliding for a long time. Maybe you need to get back into the scriptures. And so just a simple thing, consider getting into the reading plan. There's a reading plan in your program. Starts tomorrow with the Gospel of Matthew. It's for the New Testament. It's only six months. It's doable. Secondly, do you need to become more generous with your material resources in 2014? Consider being more generous in your giving to God in supporting his church. And let me just give you one reminder about supporting his church. There's only uh, the church is the only plan A for um, reconciling the world to Christ. Everything else is an extension. Um, do you need to develop a heart of contentment in 2014? Can you accept God's provision as enough? And doesn't mean that you can't ask. For for more, you can ask for whatever you need, but can you accept God, what he provides as enough? Do you need to reach out to someone who does not know Jesus yet to develop a relationship so that you can share the gospel? Do you need to focus on your marriage or your parenting in 2014? So like, are you sometimes just too busy for your marriage or too busy for parenting? Do you need to grow in prayer in 2014? Maybe you need to slow down and bring God into your life on a more daily basis. Um, Mark started his gospel as the beginning of the story. The story of the gospel, when you think about it, is still unfolding. The story of good news. Um, as the church, as you live out good news. The story is still being written. People's lives are still being impacted. And the church, think about this, the church, Jesus went back to heaven and he gave his spirit to live in the body of Christ, the church. And that's good news as we live it out every day. As we live for Christ, the good news continues. And that's what I hope happens in 2014.